Welcome back to the LCS Podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. On today's program, I talk with Paul Varkuza, creator of the Varkuzan language. Paul spoke at LCC3 about Varkuzan, and here we explore some further aspects of his language and the philosophy behind it. Thanks, Paul, for talking with us on the program. Um, the first question that I think just about anybody has when they hear about a you in your language is your name is Paul Varkuza, and the name of your language is Varkuzan. What's the story behind that? Well, first of all, the, both the name of my, my name and the name of the language are, are made up by me. And I wanted to pick something, first of all, that was ethnically ambiguous, but in a particular kind of greater Eurasian sense. So, you know, Estonia, Russia, Hungary, Romania, Greece, you know, Italy, maybe even um, Northwest India, you know, anywhere in that kind of heart of uh, the ancient world. And um, I wanted something ethnically ambiguous in that kind of realm where I'm most comfortable, but I also was interested in, you know, acoustics and kind of mathematical properties, you know, seven letters, three syllables, all that kind of stuff. So I spent some time premeditating it and then creating it. I guess I had a certain amount of debate about whether the name of the language and the name of the person should be exactly the same. And I I finally decided to make them slightly different, but, um, and I tell you this, you know, because you're on the A list to lay people. Like I said, I'd, I'd try to deceive them and make them work a lot to find out that information. And I also confused as to which, you know, which one am I named after the language or is the language named after me? It, there really is no such distinction. But I like to confuse people as much as possible because I think it's fun. And uh, people learn more if there's that kind of conflict plot situation to really develop mentally that if somebody just feeds you something, it doesn't really mean anything. So, yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, if you Google Varkuza, the first hit that comes up, it asks you if uh, you meant Varkiza, which is, I guess, a region in Greece. So, Yeah, it's a suburb of Athens. Well, I'm working on um, building up the the consciousness of the word Varkuza to the extent that it'll eventually stop doing that. Um, I mean, there are a few things that come up for it that are related to me, but yeah, I figure if I get enough traffic, it goes on for long enough, et cetera, it'll eventually supersede that. But for now I'm having to deal with that. Yeah. That's, um, that's, I think the only, there's, I think there might be some, that's the primary one letter permutation that uh, gets me in trouble there's one with Estonia. It means like um, sleeve or something like that if you change the R to an L, or I forget, but uh, Ooh, cool. it's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one thing that uh, I wonder before we start talking about the language is uh, you're married in real life. So uh, something I wonder, uh, did you change your name before you met your wife or afterwards, and then did she take your name? It actually goes like this. My, I, I was changing my name at a period of time in which my wife and I were actually not married yet, but we were also broken up. We had been dating previously and we were broken up, but she still, when I was changing my name, she decided to get in on it. So it was obviously, you know, she was still obviously intending on getting it back together, I would assume. When we got married, our names were already the same, but you know, that... 
you know, everybody just assumed that we'd whatever had done had, you know, at this point it's kind of become like, oh, that's, you know, for her, that just is now this, that's, you know, her old name is her maiden name. Whereas I went through a name change is what it's turned into. Cause it all happened in about a six to eight month period, mm-hmm. you know, from when I changed the name to when we were married and all that kind of stuff. So, oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So it was quick. Yeah, I mean, ten years from now, it's all you know. All these these this minutia will have disappeared completely. But yeah, technically, she changed her name with me when we weren't together. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so you know, just because she thought it was thought it was cool that I was you know that I was doing such a such a strange thing. You got to keep in mind, my original name is Smith, which has you know no. If I in, ever invented you know some sort of property of magnetism, I'd have no hope of naming it after myself right now. So now I, now I can name things after myself, anything I might discover or do in the future. Right. Smith is the Muhammad of America. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad news. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really cool. I have to say that um, when, uh, when my wife and I were, uh, you know, when we got engaged and we were discussing what we were going to do, we came up with any number of uh, possibilities. I even offered to take uh, her last name. She ended up taking mine, though um, she still hasn't changed it over. But um, I always thought, you know, secretly, wouldn't it be cool to just really strike out and create your own name? But um, I don't think that she was she was too uh, into that. So <laughs> we just went uh, the ordinary route. So I admire both uh, your, you know, your uh, persistence, your fortitude, but then also that it's really cool that you were able to find a partner who was willing to do it as well and was excited about it. Yeah, yeah. No, it. Uh, I guess it's amazing how quickly I adapted. You know, I was so worried I was going to have buyer's remorse, and it hasn't happened at all. And I, you know, I get people compliment me that on all the time. So, you know, yeah, maybe more people should do that. <laughs> <laughs> I really think so. I, I kind of like how it. It, uh, it especially with when you're getting married, it really symbolizes that what you're doing is creating something new, as opposed to one person joining somebody else's family. Um, and at least in our case, I kind of like how that is because I have a unique last name in my family. Nobody else has it. Uh, it's uh, it's my biological father's name, um, whose family I don't have contact with. So essentially, I kind of created my own name. Or, or at least it's my own thing, even though it's a very common name, Peterson. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at the same time, though, she took my name. It's not like we came together and created a name that we both adopted. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I agree. The whole new thing, and that you know, it, it's that with that with the language too. You know, I, when, when I gave the name, the language a name, it started to actually behave more like a. Uh, an independent entity that was separate from me, you know, prior to having a name. When you you name something, it's amazing how much that minor symbolism really has, a, you know, a measurable effect on your perception of reality. Right, and I think that's something I've definitely felt with all my conlings. They always had to have names, otherwise they were just, you know, mental exercises. They weren't actually things. Um, and so since you, uh, since you bring it up... <laughs> Uh, it's funny this whole time we haven't really been talking about your language, which is of course why we're here. Um, I was interested uh, in how you were initially inspired to create your languages, because uh, or your language rather, because uh, there are usually two ways that a conlayer comes 
to cotton langing. There are, of course, a bunch of ways, but two that are predominant. The first one is through contact with Esperanto, a language created by L.L. Zamenhof back in 1887 that is still used for international communication among enthusiasts, and uh, also through the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. They recently made movies about them, who um, created a, a universe pop to, uh, for, for, which, for his languages to populate in a way. But uh, you came to it a bit differently. Could you tell us about how that worked? Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk uh, historical characters... Um it would probably be Wittgenstein who is, you know, who's important to me. I mean, I had, I had come across Esperanto and Volapük, you know, fairly early on, but I also assessed them as kind of not my, you know, not what I was trying to do or that, you know, that's something so different. It's not really the same, the same thing. I mean, I guess when I was a teenager, I was very interested in, in Greek and German, you know, logic, you know, the perfection of ideas, etc. And so I read through, you know, Leibniz and Kant and Hegel and uh, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and all these people. And I was trying really to because I'm, I'm, I was always, at least, you know, innately a person who really believed that uh, the universe was ordered and, you know, it was out there to be understood. And everything is in some sort of, you know, foaming at the mouth alienation. And so I'm out there trying to discover these things. And the more time that went by and the more I realized that it wasn't that simple or that there wasn't this consensus like I thought, the more I was seeing the words, you know, or the language as the problem, you know, when somebody says justice or God or grammatical structuring, it was just all so chaotic. And I'm like, well, how can you, how can you make something exact like mathematics, like a mathematical proof that requires every piece to be in order to, to function? So I'm like, well, surely somebody else's, you know, has, has looked at the in this way, and that was Wittgenstein. But what really confused me is, you know, Wittgenstein wrote uh, Tractatus and all of his major stuff, you know, going on a hundred years ago, and nobody, you know, at least especially from my initial rendering, it have it really responded. It's like, all right, Wittgenstein assessed the problem I thought really well, but he didn't go try to create a language that didn't have these problems, and none of his students did either, and that kind of confused me and. I thought about it for a while, and I guess, like, well, I'm like, if they didn't want to do it, you know, I will. I mean, you know, why not? And I guess I can add to that that I always probably had inclinations toward that for other reasons. You know, I've always kind of been a person who liked to make systems. And, you know, I mean, if I mean, I've always been somebody who's been interested in massive, intricate projects. So I think that part came naturally, but it was really, I guess, the failure of rational philosophy that was my inspiration. I really could care less, technically speaking, what other people had done, even though I was aware of it to a certain extent. But it wasn't it wasn't so much, yeah, I guess I didn't even realize until, you know, just a couple of weeks ago that, um, you know, that it was t- that Tolkien and Esperanto really had so much pull. I really would have thought there would have been more. I thought there would have been at least some other people, I can't even name any per se, that have kind of a more Wittgensteinian introduction to the process or more of a philosophy-heavy introduction um yeah i've been talking here for a minute i'll let you go (laughs) (laughs) well uh there have actually um but certainly none as famous so uh, in addition to of course uh, you've seen esperanto and it was an attempt at a logical and and simple language 
But of course, we can look at it now and see that what it really is is more of an Indo-European, or not an Indo-European, but a European pidgin. Kind of like uh, if you take all the European languages together and put them in a sieve, Esperanto is what comes out. Um, but others took it more seriously. So uh, folk, uh, a guy like John Wilkins, for example, um, who tried to create a language where uh, each each element was, uh, or each, I think it was each phoneme, um, kind of delimits what comes next. And there was another more famous language called Rho that did that as well. So the first letter told you a, what broad category the term was, then the next ca- uh, letter further delineated it, then the next character uh, further delineated it, and so on and so forth. Um, but but uh, none of these languages ever became popular, probably because they were difficult to use, and uh, there wasn't anything associated with it that would be famous for another reason. So, for example, you know, Lord, uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits, uh, the books were just so unbelievably popular uh, as books that people got interested in the languages. Uh, had those books never existed, probably nobody would have heard of Tolkien or any of his languages, you know. Yeah, no, I uh, I mean, yeah, if you really look at it, Esperanto really is the major exception insofar as it, it wasn't based around a work of fiction, but most of the popular Konglangs are, and that's just how it is. And I don't know, you know, it reminds me of political movements, you know, once something has been done, it gets harder to do. So even if you come along and say, hey, my language is, you know, way different than Esperanto, you're having trouble you know using the same space even if that's tremendously true and you're nevertheless in some sort of way in the shadow and that creates some sort of hesitation with people and that you know that's just kind of how it is not so much with conglingers but uh, i think with maybe more tangential characters or even the public at large if you want to go that far so back to the original question when did you really start to formulate the language like about what age were you well, the idea um, was very was very cut and dry. I, mean, I, th- I that was nineteen was when I decided. Well, okay, I will do this. And then there was a very heavy period initially there when I was nineteen of making it. And, and I um, I think I started with um, strictly speaking with um, grammatical structuring. And so I I you know prepositions and conjoining words that became kind of the meat and potatoes right away. It's kind of like and so then I got stuck, but I got to a certain point where I was I was running up against walls, and it was kind of like, well, where am I going with this? I'm, you know, out alone, which, you know, isn't true. I realize that now. But at the time, I you know, I couldn't find anything on the Internet about contemporary projects. You know, the Internet's gotten a lot smarter in the last seven years. Right. But um, <laughs> so I kind of stopped for a while, and then I came back to it about a year and a half, two years ago, and the the version now is cons- considerably changed from the version that i started in what is it 2002 mm-hmm. but there are some basic things that still are connected i do consider it to be the same language even though 2.0 is a lot different than 1.0 but um so yeah i guess i guess 19 oh cool all right so um what what state would you say the language is at now Let's say as far as uh, usability. Um, I mean, I'm getting up there in some ways. I've always had this, you know, people be like, well, how do you say, um, you know, 
go to the store and buy a loaf of bread and it's kind of like, well, half of that vocabulary is really uninteresting. I haven't taken the time yet. You know, I can I, I'm sooner to, to say a mathematical uh, process than something mundane. It's it's getting better. I mean, I really have the vocabulary shortage thing as a problem all the time. I mean, I just uh, I just did the the golden rule translation for Hillel. Right. You know, and I was I'm able to do that, but it's still. I'm trying to think. It's sorry. I'm sorry. I'm lacking like a scale here. Um, it's not something that's developed enough to the extent where whether you could say you know a person is or is not fluent in it because there's still a an insufficient amount of vocabulary. The structuring is pretty pretty developed. I mean, at this point, it's more about making changes to the structure, not about developing structure. Um, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I. Well, uh, how about how about this? What is uh, what's your ultimate goal? Right, what what is the purpose of the language? I mean, I want to make the language complete. I'm not going to completely torture myself on minute details, but um, at least the ones that aren't important. But um, I would like to move into writing philosophy and recording poetry and writing poetry in the language, which are kind of, you know, two wings of the same bird, taking two things which I feel like abut the extremes of what language is capable of doing to the point where you're warping language so severely that you're, you know, it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle if you're into physics. It's like your poetry reaches a, a point where it can't go any farther because this is where the language allows it to go. And philosophy is the same thing. So I basically want to make it strong enough that I can start doing those activities in the language and maybe even excel beyond where at least I was personally able to go in thought, you know, think things that couldn't be thought before, you know, like Star Trek, to think things that have never been thought before. <laughs> um, that's where I'm looking to go, and I'm probably going to create 90% of the universe insofar as the language is concerned in order to get there. But uh, that's that's really the goal, and I'm getting close. I'm, you know, when I can translate one of my poems, that'll be a real occasion because that is not an easy thing to do. You know, complex, weird vocabulary, you know, complex run-on sentences with subordinate clauses. I mean, that that's harder than a technical work because technical works tend to be consistent and orderly and linear. You know, I don't think it'll be far before I'm really getting into those realms where it's going to be about fluency and philosophical things. I actually started did um, I did start trying to write definitions for uh, you know um, mathematical functions in ways that I know aren't done currently, and I'm just kind of playing with that right now. But that's something I'd like to embolden as I enrich the uh, the language. So there um, there's something that jumps out to me where. Somebody might look at this and say, wow, these are really two almost opposite, almost incompatible goals. You have the idea of philosophy and mathematics and science and describing things with this language very precisely, very objectively. And then you have completely on the other spectrum, poetry, which many see as... Uh, well, usually the, the, the word that gets used with poetry is flowery, but more metaphorical, less literal. So um, it seems like it, almost a goal of this language is to be as literal, as literal and precise as is necessary 
to handle the science, but then should also be capable of less literal language, uh, non-literal language, metaphorical language? Yeah, well, you know, that's – and that comes with anything else. I'm a big believer in, you know, dialectics, unification of opposites. You know, I really think that philosophy only can go so far without poetry and vice versa, and that's that's true, and that has nothing to do with conglinging. And so – I don't. I don't necessarily see it as a conflict of interest in terms of um, uh, preciseness of vocabulary. You know, there's there, there's a time to be exact and there's a time to be vague. And the the key is at least that the writer has control. And as for metaphor, you know, everything is a metaphor on some level. So I mean, poetry is a little bit more upfront about it. But if you start really breaking down supposedly objective things. They're all defined in terms of each other anyways, and what is a metaphor other than something that's defined in terms of something else? So that distinction, I mean, you know, these these distinctions really break down on the fundamental level. You know, poetry and that, um, they, they start to to look like each other. When you really break it down, you are just talking about metaphor and the collision of of forces, of ideas, and that's all it really is. And the only thing that's in any way tricky is maintaining – the aesthetics of something insofar as sound is concerned, but, you know, saying something technical, I have issues with that, but, you know, I work on it. It's nothing that can't, I don't think can't be handled. Hmm. Well, now that, that brings up an interesting point, I think, from the opposite perspective. Um, if you think about, um, at least looking at, looking at language in terms of metaphor, uh, conceptual metaphor, as somebody like uh, George Lakoff would talk about it. And you talk about creating an extremely precise language. Um, it seems like that's almost an impossible task, that one can't actually break out of metaphor and describe things as they are, shall we say, uh, because the human mind is so buried in metaphor and is really incapable of um, even thinking about anything abstract without describing it in terms of something more concrete. You know, when it comes to metaphor, I liken it to empty space. I don't think that the empty space exists. I think there is the space that is the least dense. So everything has density as far as I'm concerned. And everything is metaphor. That which is least metaphoric is sometimes mistaken for non-metaphoric, but there really is no such thing. And one of the things that Wittgenstein said, which I, you know, have always really, really has been key for me, is anything that applies to everything is in a not non-germane, but it kind of it kind of separates off, you know, because if it applies to everything then it's almost like math where you take out the factor, then like that can't ever be the reason to reject something. You know, it's kind of like, and he made that argument with God. He says, well, if God is the set of all things, then it really ceases to have any special meaning because it's the set of all things. Hmm. And so in, in a strange sort of way, that was his way of saying atheism is because the set of all things lacked any real objective meaning by definition. And it was this kind of contrast issue. But if everything is metaphoric, then in a sense, metaphor doesn't exist because there's no non-metaphor to define it against. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that actually makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. In, in other words, things are always defined in terms of other things. It's That's not the issue. The issue 
is the quality of those definitions, which in turn have to be assessed from within inside the system. Everything is happening from inside the system, and I guess it's just uh-huh. you can't you can't get hung up on that. You know what I mean? I mean. I'm never going to, you know, it's not going to be an issue. It's like, well, you know, I solved the universe. There it is. I fit it on a eight, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. If anybody wants to know, that's 250. You know, it's <laughs> never, it's not, it's not ever going to be that cut and dry, but there is, there is something to go for. And I definitely feel at least with logic that there's this feeling of you know, incompletion, which drives me nuts. If nothing else, the, the, the modes of thought we should be able to systematize you know, if not completely better than we have now, because we haven't reached a point where it's obvious that we can't go any farther. You know, that actually brings up an interesting point about both conlanging and just language in general. Um, often, any language other than our own is defined for us in terms of our own language. Uh, and it has to do with fluency and exactly what the nature of fluency is. For example, um, one of my favorite languages uh, of all time, uh, natural languages, is Hawaiian. Um, I just love the language, but it's very clear that the picture of Hawaiian that I get is filtered through English. I mean, I can try as much as I can to understand that, you know, this word, whatever it is, means this in this context and this in that context and this in that other context. But all the times I'm saying this, I'm referring to an English word and an English concept. Um, there's no way, I mean, maybe if I started now and studied for the rest of my life, there's no way I'll be able to get the purely Hawaiian concept of any given Hawaiian word. So, as this relates to conlanging, how we transcribe our languages or how we actually write them down and deal with them is we define terms and concepts, usually in terms of some other language. Like for, for, our, for our cases, usually it's English. We say that, you know, this word or this concept or this affix uh, corresponds roughly to this meaning that we give in English. But even that, it can't really be true, can it? Um, because the system has to exist on its own and should only be evaluated and understood in its own terms, I guess, uh, if this makes sense. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I'm very aware of is as long as I am thinking about my conlang in English or, you know, I'm forced to define things roughly, I mean, maybe conceptually they're defined in terms of each other, but I'm still constantly referencing English then I'm at a certain level when I can really start writing, you know, Varkusen definitions in Varkusen, dare say it, ever think in the language, you know, you know, automatically, then that's a whole nother level. And, you know, kind of going back to the whole system analysis, because for me, this is, you know, any system potentially can sit there and negate the other systems and then the other systems can negate that system or they cannot understand each other. And you could get to this issue where, you know, think of religion, you know, every, I just shouldn't say every religion, but many religions will say every other religion is wrong. Mm-hmm. And their reason for that is either a book or a doctrine. And it, it goes back to something that becomes, you know, a circular logic within that system. And then you could sit here and say, well, as an objective bystander, I'm looking at, you know, all these different closed systems which have their own understanding within themselves. 
and then can because the, the other systems don't agree with that are negated and you could sit there and be like well what do you make of that mm-hmm. you know and that's just that's just that that's that the, the nature will never change that paradigm will never change even a perfect system would only be perfect to itself and by definition wouldn't necessarily be perfect to another system that's just the nature of reality really it's it's kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh let's talk a bit about the structure of your language well one of the things that uh you've already mentioned and that's mentioned several times and that you you talked a bit about uh in your talk at LCC3 um was the importance of prime numbers now bearing in mind that I myself am not a math person, and that many people listening will also not be math people. Uh, can can you try to uh, impress upon us what it is that, what the importance of the prime numbers is, and how exactly they work in a language? Okay. Um, well, there's a couple different ways to take that. First of all, very simply, primary colors. Right. All other colors are made out of primary colors. If you wanted to, you could express any pigment as a ratio of red, yellow, blue, and I guess white and black if you want to bring in the shade, right? Mm -hmm. So numbers are no different. Any number can be expressed as the product of multiplying prime numbers together. And there's a lot of interesting, you know, um, I mean, prime numbers is the basis of cryptology for the same reason. There's a lot of interesting effects where because each number is unique that way, any system where something is composed of parts, like a number of parts, chemistry being the most obvious example, I don't use it because the numbers get too big. I have to, I do it in an ordinal sense with chemistry. But, you know, if you assigned each element a prime number where if you used, you know, anything other than primes, that wouldn't work. An exception to that is if you only are allowed to have one from each category, you can do the powers of two. You know, number off one, two, four, eight, sixteen, etc. And each combination will work, but that's only if there's one in each category. Otherwise, you have to use primes, and that that's a very practical application that comes up a lot. But basically, it's because you know, if I'm if I'm going to say that that integers, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that those are the basis for things. I naturally default on primes because all of those numbers are reducible in terms of their composition to these numbers. And after that, there is no, there is no farther reduction. Okay. Right. And that's just kind of you know, the nature of things. I'm very interested, and I'll, I'll keep this short because of the technical nature of it, but in the, in the, uh, the hunt defined, the Riemann hypothesis has never been proved, and it's about being able to predict the zeros on this line that predicts prime numbers. It's kind of it's – obtuse and complicated but what's ended up happening is like this entire vast universe of things can be proved if this one proof about prime numbers is true but in 150 years they can't prove it but they've proved everything else around it and everything because of it and it's kind of become this centerpiece to all of mathematical structuring that can't be solved i mean it's up there with the godel thing although it's the godel thing wasn't based on a proof but that's really fascinating too and i kind of you know i really came to appreciate the significance of primes and I realized that kind of all of mathematical um, speculation was wrapped in around this one, this one problem about prime numbers that couldn't be solved. It kind of is this, the, the pulse of math. Let's just say that. You know, we'll keep it real non-technical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, how practically then um, do prime numbers work in Barcusa? What do they, what do, they do? Shall we say? Well, the, 
the main thing that happens is I give numbers personalities and those are reducible to the more fundamental personalities of primes. And then, you know, the first thing that happens is the personality of the numbers is translated over to consonants based on kind of my psychoacoustic perception and also looking at the, the science of how they're made into kind of making kind of like a, a, a fit where, you know, this consonant goes with this number because their personalities are together. It's kind of like matchmaking. Okay. And uh, then based on that, you know, a certain word, you know, based on the, the meaning of that word can, you know, I can associate it with certain traits or tendencies that reduce back to the letters, that reduce to the numbers, that reduce to prime. So there's this whole kind of chain reaction where I'm basically marrying the left brain of math to the right brain of color and emotion and all that kind of stuff. And prime numbers is my vehicle. And then there's the other lesser quality of, like I said, the ability of prime numbers to can be, be combined and no two combinations are alike kind of allows if you're if I have to systematize something, it's going to come up because it has that mathematical property. So I guess those would be the main two things that I use it for. Okay. So um how many consonants do you have then? Um, 25 uh, straight consonants and then four fricatives. Okay. So then are, are, they, are they literally, does each consonant have, you know, 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, and so on? Yeah. And when you count, you're basically counting consonants with, uh, you know, uh, a short I on the end of them in, in the real brief form. But that's kind of how it works. And I've, uh, you know, I'm fluent in that when i see a letter now i see or i think the number that it goes with automatically and vice versa and i don't have to really think about it and that part has become automatic to me which is cool wow and this was something you created so in other words the the system predated your thought not the other way around the system predated yeah i came up with the system but i've used it so much and that was i think actually the very you know, I said earlier it was the prepositions, but I take that back. I did I did counting before I did anything. And so that was the first thing I did. And even though I've changed it a bunch of times, I mean, it's become very ingrained. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm just very, yeah, just very nervous because I use it with everything too. Whenever I'm, you know, developing, I shouldn't say whenever, but I use it so much when I'm making vocabulary and dealing with things. If you were going to learn my language, you know, you'd have the same experience where you'd just be using it constantly you're using this alphanumeric referencing system right. and it's just going to be beat into your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. That's really cool. All right. So, um, something else that you talked about during LCC three that, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think everybody in attendance was very interested in, and we didn't really have enough time to fully go into, um, was the role that synesthesia plays. So uh, you've, identified, uh, you've identified yourself as uh, a synesthesi... Synesthetic. Synesthetic, yeah, that's much better than synesthesiac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, as synesthetic. Um, so first, uh, before going on, go ahead and, uh, and give, give everybody a, a very basic definition of synesthesia. All right. All synesthesia is is a um, a connection in your brain. It's independent of anything you do between one category of sense and another. But these connections are one to one, and they're exact and unchanging. So if you have you know sound and taste, you know, like I said, sax a saxophone music could sound could if you hear saxophone music, it could make you taste salt. Or if you you know 
you see the number four, it could make you see green. And it's really, it's categories of senses, but it's also things like numbers and letters. And I think it's just because they have such a, an objective, and that's, and that's a scientific question, not a personal question, people who study it. But yeah, people have these, and they're, they exist their whole life, and they're involuntary. And they're just connections between things. And nobody, there isn't that much, you know, there's, there's been some science behind it, but they don't fully understand how it works, but it's obviously just has to do with there being connections in the brain that make things happen for whatever reason. And every synesthetic is a little bit different. You know, for some, a day of the week could be blue and for others it's red. And, you know, they'll never, they didn't choose that. It'll be that their whole life and they're always going to be different that way. And that's just how synesthesia is. All right. So, um, uh, okay. I think be- before going on, here, here's a question that I've always wondered. Um, uh, apart from, uh, well, forget days of the week, forget n- numbers even, but uh, think about letters. Now, if, if a letter was associated with a color, uh, isn't it the case that a letter, you know, just a letter, is a visual object? So um, letters don't exist anywhere other than visually. Um, and after we see them visually, we get, you know, a mental representation of them. But, uh, for example, letters aren't how languages are put together. Uh, languages are put together uh, with phones, you know, sounds that don't, right. that they don't match up one-to-one with letters. Um, but um, so the, the idea is every time you see a letter anywhere, it has a color. It has to. The, there's no such thing as a letter that can... I don't know, can be printed in non-color. I suppose most of the time it's uh, pretty generic black on white, but um, nevertheless, so let's say um, you think of the letter A, and it seems to me that what happens is you cycle through every instance of the letter A that you've ever, that you've ever encountered in your life, and maybe you could just kind of, I don't know, average them and uh, see what color uh, comes up most frequently with that one. I don't know, but <laughs> that was just an idea I had. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like I said, there's not a total understanding to why or how this works. But uh, amongst thinesthetics, if you take a poll because somebody did this, the letter A is most likely to be red. Something about red or something about A is conducive with red. And I'm, I don't think many people would disagree that colors tend to, tend to be connected with psychological or emotive states you know, that just has to do with the way the brain is set up. You know, red obviously is more active and aggressive and blues and greens are more calming. You know, I mean, that's pretty much been proven. But what is it about A? Is it about the shape of A? Maybe the point or the, you know, the fact doesn't have any curved lines that gives it a more um, harsh color, perhaps. But not everybody. For some people, A is blue. And nobody really knows exactly how these connections are made. But there is... There is a mechanism to it. I, I, you know, I said during my talk the whole Kiki Boba thing, where you got a pointed star and a star where the the edges are curved. You know, ninety seven percent of people will give the word Kiki to the pointed one and the word Boba to the curved one. There is some sort of um, kind of like pre verbal linkage in the brain that has some level of consistency amongst people, and that hasn't been fully explored. And with my project, I'm kind of trying to walk a line between using that objectivity 
but not trying to get caught up in the fact that I know that it's not a perfect system. And if I try to approximate it too much, I'm just going to contradict myself. So I'm trying to kind of be be inspired by that, but nevertheless to make a system that's self-consistent and not to get too worried about it not lining up perfectly because that'll never work. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I have to just mention, I always thought it was so strange. One of the things that you usually hear about synesthetics is that A is usually red. And that always struck me as so bizarre because vowels, I mean, uh, red is, you know, it's a warm color. It seems like an angry, loud color. But um, yeah. but vowels are so inherently mellow. Yeah, like I, I stay away from vowels for the most part. And um, I can't, I mean, for me, my cynicity is more... Um, you know, I like to say psychotopological. You know, I I don't the color thing doesn't happen with me that much. I'm more about creating strange spatial relationships between sequences of information. And so I can't overly relate personally to the color synesthesia. I mean I have it a little bit, but it's more it's more like oil being washed down a drain. It's like kind of odd shimmering streaks of color that are that are it's like I can see them, but I can't explain them. It's kind of it's kind of hard to explain. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, the the vowel thing, I don't know. But and I don't know how. I don't know what the actual raw numbers. I don't know if most anesthetics don't give vowels color, whether they prefer to give consonants color. I mean, giving consonants color for me is way more natural than vowels. That's interesting. So um, you mentioned that you don't really have uh, much of the color uh, synesthesia. What um, and you talk about spatial relationships. Can you give us uh, some examples? Yeah. Um, well, probably my favorite is the number line because it's so unusual. And it basically, it's, think of it as almost like a, um, like a roller coaster, but, you know, it doesn't, it only goes straight. I mean, it goes up and down, but it doesn't go side to side. So we're a completely linear function. Okay. And that's what it is. It go almost like the like like looking at a, a price of stocks, you know, on the the stock exchange. Like the number line goes side to side, you know, and it, you, it counts, but it goes up and down. And that shape, the shape that it has, and where the numbers fall on the shape, has been that way since I can remember remembering it when I was six or seven years old, and it has never changed. And it was only when I was older that I realized that that was not unusual. And I ever conceived of the idea of why is it like that? It doesn't make any sense. Like the highest point on the line is 19. And uh, there's kind of almost a a tendency to include yourself almost like a character. So I can actually visualize my point of sight from within the scene. So if I'm at the number 13 and I'm thinking of numbers – farther ahead i have the problem that the the immediate numbers in front of me are forming a hill and they're blocking my view and my automatic reaction is to move my line of sight away from the line so i can see it from an angle or i can go over but that takes longer i actually go off the line to the side to see ahead and if i'm naturally thinking about high numbers i'm usually in my my point of sight in my mind is usually around 19 because that's the highest point and you can see the farthest I mean, I, you know, I could spend a long time talking about it and being like, well, why is this like that? But that's very exact, and it's always been that way. And there's kind of a vague color to it, but it's almost more its almost more about, like, brightness than color. 
you know, and there's these little dips and stuff, but that's, that's mostly what it is. And, you know, the only thing I ever could speculate as to why 19 was the highest and why that there tends to be, I should say, topological disturbances around nines is I always thought when I count, if you go like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, there's a little elongation of 19 before you say 20 because you're, you know, you're doing this phonological repetition. All of a sudden, you're changing gears. And I always right, thought right. that perhaps that elongation, because it's not always the same. From 29 to 30, it goes up, and it's a minor difference. And there's things that don't, other, you know, like 4 to 5 is a drop, and 13 is pretty much a hole that you could get your leg caught in because it's 14 goes right back up. But um, 9s tend to have this perturbation, and I always theorize that it was from counting. But I don't know because I can't remember if it was there, you know, relative to when I learned how to count. So... That's my favorite example. Um, there's other ones that are weirder, I would suppose. Ah, can you tell us about those? Yeah, I think the the days of the week thing is weirder because it's more emotional. Um, like, all right, think of think of the weekends as meadows and the weeks as forests, Monday through Friday. When you're going into to from Monday to Wednesday, you're maybe going up a little bit. You're going deeper into the woods. It's getting darker. It's getting colder. But there's also a sense that the curvature of space is increasing and that's creating an increase in anxiety and an increasing sense of enclosure and internal enfolding. Almost like, you know, the difference between, a, you know, if, the, if Sunday's a piece of paper flat, Wednesday's a piece of paper that's been crumpled up into a ball. Um, and that's altogether bizarre. So I'm combining what topology, you know, ge- geometry and and all that and visual orientation with emotions and like i guess abstract geometry and i guess to a certain extent light not so much color but just the idea of light and the source of light like if you're you couldn't read it if it was wednesday night you couldn't read a book because there's so much shadow right there whereas you know so yeah and that's that's more unusual to this kind of i i haven't really seen too many cases of this kind of bizarre topological psychological Admixture, but I'm pretty sure it's out there. I just think there's not enough research that's been done. Well, it's interesting because um, what you're doing there is you're applying it to essentially a Western system of the seven-day week. Uh, and that's very obvious too, don't you think, right, in that right. case where the weekend is this more mellow thing and the week is more harsh? That obviously can't be a coincidence with how the work week is constructed. Yeah, certainly. If um, I think if you were to describe the system and say – uh, or just the very basic idea of there's a meadow and there's a forest. One of them applies to the week and one of them applies to the weekend. I think that, you know, how most people in America would do it. Um, so I think a, a, an open question is what would happen if you were transplanted to a different society with a different type of week? For example, um, one of the things that I learned back in college in a, a fantastic class on the cultures of the Caribbean is that um, – uh, many of the slaves that came over from Africa, uh, you know, to work as slaves in America, experienced a, an extreme um, temporal uh, disturbance in a way, because I guess traditionally, uh, many of uh, in many of the West African cultures, there was a four or a five day week where you'd work for two or three days and then you get two days off, so that. Um, they came to America and the seven-day week, and uh, suddenly they're working five days or six days on and one or two days off. 
and it was extremely disorienting uh, in that, you know, where they expected their weekend to come, um, suddenly they uh, were still yeah. having to work. And not only that, but uh, they experienced their weekends differently. So like the traditional Sunday uh, back then where nobody was supposed to work, it was supposed to be a day of rest and relaxation and church and reflection, um, their weekends were traditionally more active. Um, and so they were used to doing more. And so that rest and that total, you know, not doing anything, that too was disorienting uh, as far as a, an ordinary weekend day. Yeah, I, I see. And this would be a great thing to do a study on. And what I'm about to say is completely conjecture. But I see two possibilities. One is that, yeah, the, the, the possibility that by stressing the system, it could be altered or maybe altered slowly. But I think what's actually more likely is if I think if you did a small change that maybe there could be a new synesthetical, you know, situation is going to be set up and then those two will coexist and they will only be referenced versus where they are. So like let's say the slave had synesthesia. He comes to America and, you know, the system is different. And in his head what's going to happen is he's going to create a different synesthetical map for America, but if he ever went back to Africa, the old one would kick in right away. It would almost be like, you know, when the Soviets tortured POWs and they got multiple personality disorder. By putting stress in the system, it's going to divide. That would be what I would think would happen, but I don't know. I do know that these systems are fairly resilient to change, and it's it's almost like the old dog new tricks thing. It's like well, maybe it's created in when your brain is soft and new. And once it's created, it doesn't really change. And then if it doesn't fit after that, it's just a pain in the ass, you know, because I, I don't I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, back to your language. Um, let me just make sure I'm understanding right. The consonants each have a prime number associated with them and, and a color. Is that right? No, no. Each consonant has an integer associated with. So oh, not, all, not all – yeah, yeah. Not all consonants are prime because otherwise – that when you were counting, that would get really bizarre because some would be shorter than others. Right. Um, I mean, you could do it that way. I mean, I've definitely played with stuff like that. But no, each it just goes in order. You know, one to well, first of all, I use a twelve base system, not a ten base. So I go one to twenty four, and then there's some there's some doubles, there's some issues. Like I use the velar nasal and the what I guess I'll say it probably the alveolar approximant share a number because. The, for phonological reasons, they can't map the whole beginning and ending territory of a syllable at once. But otherwise, I go 1 to 24, and I have kind of some some intricacies about it, but that's more or less what it is. And then, and then the, you know, the prime structuring, the, the, the personalities and the psychology and all that exists underneath that. But the reason that them, they get that, like, you know what I mean? If V is 8, for example, that's not unrelated to the fact that it's three twos. That's all factored into it so that there's a, a – not a predictability but a, a rationality behind, you know, who gets what. You know, what letter gets what number is based on the primes and the positions, you know, of those consonants, you know, we could say in a, uh, you know, an IPA diagram. Uh, does it also matter that 8 is 5 and 3? You know, it's funny that you'd pick that um, – well – Maybe not, but uh, no, because the the whole the whole prime combination thing is based on on multiplication. Because I could say, well, eight is three and five, but eight is also two and six. So I can sit here and bring every number lower than eight into a possible explanation of eight, and that kind of renders them all 
equally worthless because they're equally strong, whereas the prime thing is unique. You know, eight can only be expressed in terms of primes as three twos. There's no other way to do it. All right, of course. And that's that's there. the whole idea Sorry. of the prime thing is that each combination is unique and specific. And in that sense, there's like a semantic one-to-one correlation within the mathematical world for primes. Or if you use addition, you can do as many ways as you can uh, you can conceptualize. Right. Okay. Now, now that makes sense. Sorry. Um, okay. So uh, eight is v. Yeah. What is two? It's the letter J, but it's the it's the just sound, which I guess would be kind of the post alveolar voiced fricative. Right. Okay. It's interesting. Um, one thing I'm wondering: what's nineteen? Nineteen is the. I'm trying to. I got to think of the. Um, because we don't we don't have it in English. I use the IPA symbol. It's the voiced velar fricative. So that's like a uh, Yep. <laughs> oh, interesting. So um, this is kind of coming out of nowhere. But uh, in phonology, when you learn phonology, uh, did you ever take linguistics at all? No, I, I sat in on a comparative uh, languages class, but I, you know, I um, I don't know. I'm kind of hit and miss. I mean, I've studied a lot of it, but I definitely have gaps in my knowledge, which prove that I never took a class. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, one of the things that you learn in a phonology class that's always kind of fun is uh, about uh, the difference between phonemes uh, or, and allophones uh, and distribution. Uh, because if you look at English, um, H can occur at the beginning of a word. It can occur at the end of the word. Uh, the, velar, the velar nasal, engma, can occur at the end of the word. It can occur at the beginning of the word. And so then it's like, well, then why aren't they not allophones of the same phoneme? And the answer is because it simply doesn't make sense. But... Um, I really like what you've done with uh, with the numbering principles and how H and R uh, occupy the same number, because it's almost kind of the same principle. Only now it's actually instantiated, and I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's the velar nasal and R, but uh, you got the right idea. So um, to kind of shift focus a little bit, what kind of a role? does Varcuza play in your everyday life? Uh, I mean, apart from times when you're actually working on it, uh, what kind of role does it play and what kind of a role do you want it to play in the future? Well, as I stated before, I'm definitely trying to move towards that being able to write, translate poetry, you know, philosophize in that kind of stuff. Aside from working on it, the biggest role is probably talking about it or, you know, you know, or, or maybe in some cases kind of developing concepts tangentially that go with the whole idea, like that whole infinity thing, for example. In order for me to do that, I had to sit here and do a lot of math work <laughs> and think of, think about math. And so there's this kind of this thing where, you know, if I'm studying or, you know, when I was studying chemistry, the vocabulary for chemistry, I ended up having to study chemistry to make sure my uh, my verbiage is correct. So there's all this kind of tangential thing, but it's it's mostly kind of just like a thing that's there that I'm aware of that I talk about that I do. I write certain things out in it, you know, kind of more for fun or to try to expose myself to it, you know, dates on a calendar or little one-line sentences and I'll write them around the house so that they're available to see. 
So I guess I'm slowly trying to, to condition myself to being surrounded by it or to, to being able to use it in a powerful way. But yeah, right now it mostly yeah, it exists between working on it and between talking about it, I guess. If, I don't know if that's what you were looking for. I wasn't sure how else to answer. But. No, that's about right. Um, and uh, just out of curiosity, uh, is your wife at all involved in the project still? Um, she, yeah, there's definitely a level of interest, but there's definitely, you know, a vast gap between, you know, where I am and, you know, that's very difficult to kind of teach something as you're making it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There almost has to be a certain level of completion before you're really at that level to say, all right, this is what you need to learn first. And this is how it works. And here are some examples of it in everyday life. (laughs) And, you know, here's a definition in terms of itself you know, a definition in that language. Like if you really look at, if you want to properly teach something, you need to be fairly up there. And, you know, I've, um, you know, I've taught, I taught my wife and a few other people to count at certain points, but we're having, you know, it it hasn't been used enough for word to where the knowledge maintains. It'd have to be taught again. Nothing would make me happier than to make a second person fluent or, you know, to advance their knowledge to the point where I could talk to them and then we could sit there and advance their knowledge collectively. But um, I definitely think that's possible. And, you know, as the name change, you know, would illustrate that motivation is there. It's really more about me getting it to that point, you know, fully. And, you know, I mean, at this point, she goes to school and all this kind of stuff. So there, there's a practical issue about it. But it's around. I, I've painted my inside hallway with chalk, chalkboard paint. Ooh. You know, it's and uh, so like the whole when you walk in, there's about a. Uh, about 15 feet on both sides of just like language scratchings and little diagrams and weird stuff. So it it has a very, you know, stern presence in the house. I take it you don't rent then? No, I do rent. I'm just a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I'll either be repainting it or losing my deposit. One option is cheaper than the other, but, you know, one is more work than the other. Oh, boy. Well, um, thanks very much for talking with us today, and good luck with your project. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Our intro and outro music is by Gary J. Shannon of FizzyWig.com. Our audio editing and post-production was done by Jeff Burke, creator of The Languages of Desaria. This podcast would not be possible without you, so please... If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for people to interview, music we could use, or an interesting story to share, email or IM us at lcs at conlang.org, or visit our website, podcast.conlang.org. I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Language Creation Society podcast. See you next time. Fiat Lingua.